0: chemtrails is intended for mature audiences only
1: thanks for tuning in to the chemtrails podcast where you get the latest topics within the culture with the uncensored unscripted facts and opinions from our crew
0: this is colin lynch co-founder of the black opportunity fund head of global real estate investing and a large asset manager and you're listening to the chemtrails podcast I agree with you i would also however say this plenty of initiatives uh receive money all across the usa tens of millions hundreds of millions of of dollars right There, there are tons of charities and foundations and whatever else across the usa right of huge scale that you know receive donations from very rich people and, and and not so rich people. And so why is it that there can't be one for the black community? Why is it that, you know, investing in the black community philanthropically must mean that people must still profit off of it? Why can't there be a notion That the entirety of the USA is improved when a community that represents a huge portion of the population—I can't remember the stats—is it 13 percent, something like that? Um, Yes, US.
2: Yeah, 13.
0: 13 percent is actually economically empowered. Like that.
1: Welcome, you are tuned in to the Chemtrails Podcast. I'm your host today, Trader Dre. As always, I'm joined by my brothers, Mo Chris, and AP. How y'all fellas doing?
2: Man, doing good, man. Ready for another episode.
3: Yeah, man. Just blessed. Blessed to see you another day. I hear you, man. I hear you. As
1: always, we're gonna start it off with uh what's on your mind, and uh just kind of lead things off. Man, I had something that was like at the top of my timeline. And it had to do with this whole Trump, Trump trying to ban TikTok, and then kind of in the late hours, breaking news that Microsoft was jumping in and trying to buy TikTok. I just kind of wanted to get y'all take on it, man. What you think about it?
2: Well, I I think that it's just a clear move on. On pretty much the business elite, it, it shows you how businesses, big businesses, is, is literally running the country. Corporations. So when you have, you know, Trump say, "Hey, I'm a, I want to ban TikTok for privacy reasons," and so, and then you see like somebody like Microsoft say, "Hey, man, this is a cash cow. We can, you know, put our foot in the door for this bid too as well." So I just, it's just funny. I I look at it like being like, looking at both sides, it's like, okay, cool. What is really going on? And is TikTok really about privacy or is it really about just another government control type of thing?
1: And and I wonder that myself, because I look at it and I say, why was it not okay when it was owned and operated by China versus do we honestly believe that with Microsoft at the helm and controlling mm-hmm. this data, people's data is going to be safer. I mean, right. is that the same? I mean, we've seen what's happened with some of these other big tech social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, how often they've been hacked. Same thing with like, uh, do we expect to right. see something different when Microsoft moves away from just only having LinkedIn, which is a pretty powerful social media platform, Mm -hmm. and now jumping into something that is completely non-professional based. I mean, I look at it and I say, this was just a golden opportunity for for Microsoft to just say, okay, now we're going to kind of try to squeeze into that same space that's currently occupied by Facebook and Instagram.
2: Yeah. And it just clearly shows you that the government really cares about like, hey, it's okay. We spy on people. We just don't Want any other country to do it. So, so it's just, that's how Go- I look at it. Government
1: secrets because they see right. 13 year olds do their dance moves. Right. right. <laughs> right. All right. right. All right, man. All right. Well, I'm glad I just got your take on it, man, because I, I looked at that and I just said, that just seemed like, first of all, it was kind of odd that the president was so adamant about taking away that that control from foreign powers, but yet it's so eager to to come to terms with Microsoft taking it all. So anyways, all right. Thank you, oh, Chris. Thank you, AP. We're going to get ready to move into our next segment, which is the takeoff. want to be part of the chemtrails family join the group you can find us on facebook and ask for access to our group you'll be one of the first to know everything chemtrails all right all right we are in the takeoff we got a special guest today a friend of mine long time back let me first start by just saying he's a very, very intelligent brother. hails from Canada. I met him when he was doing some consulting work for one of the one of the biggest consulting firms in the United States. definitely one of the most powerful. We worked on several projects together over the course of almost two years, I think it was. solved a lot of problems, created some more, and uh, continued to move forward. right now works for one of the one of the biggest asset management firms in all of Canada, and is in charge of global real estate, uh, making investments uh, across the planet, and uh, hopefully making more money for his firm than he's losing. I'd like to welcome you all to, to meet and to get to know Mr. Colin Lynch. How you doing, Colin?
0: Hey, not bad. Great to be on.
1: All right. All right. Well, first things first, Colin. Tell our, our listeners a little bit about your path to where you are and and a little bit about what it is you're doing right now, I guess.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, so my parents were born in the Caribbean, in Antigua, and Montserrat, and they decided that they had too much heat, so they needed to come to the cold up here in Canada. So they came to Montreal and to get some snow and uh you can imagine straight up from the Caribbean and French speaking Montreal in the sixties and the cold, uh was quite the uh quite the place to be, particularly when your mom was in finance and we all know how diverse and how uh how many females were in finance back then. Uh, so it was, a, it was an interesting place to be. So they moved to Toronto. I was born. I grew up here. I grew up actually as a musician. Did a lot of performances, concert toured all that. At one point, did about 100 performances a year in high school. And then I decided it was time to go explore business. And so that wasn't enough. And so I did a history degree while I was doing that. I finished up a music diploma from the conservatory. So I graduated with these three pieces of paper. And then my wonderful mom said it was time to actually do some work, get a scale. So I went to investment banking, worked on uh, Wall Street, uh, and then the street up here in Toronto called Bay Street for um, Morgan Stanley uh, during the financial crisis. Went to B-School, got in, got into law school, couldn't figure out why they let me in. So I ended up just staying with B-School and then joined that big consulting firm, lived in Chicago, was living in Boston for B-School at Harvard, and, and then decided that I, I wanted to be back in Canada. So came back to Canada and, and, and then my whole transition into uh, what I'm doing for my day job and hopefully making money began. Big passion for politics, and so I spent a bit of time there as well. What happened in the last few months is, I think, a, a movement that we've all been talking about originated in the U.S. and it's spread around the world, and it's a recognition that Black lives actually matter. In Canada, you know, we have a wonderful reputation as a diverse and multicultural society, The only problem is that when you actually look at some of the stats, they're not too different than what you see in terms of the Black experience in the USA. So we got a lot of the same problems. And so instead of this time sort of just joining the protests and this time joining the Twitter movement and the Instagram movement, which are good, what we wanted to do was catalyze the moment to create something that's permanent. That's actually going to fill in the gaps and to enable black organizations, whether they're charities or nonprofits or businesses, to scale and to achieve something that they've never dreamt possible to achieve before. To eliminate those systemic barriers, whether it's businesses that can't get money from banks because they're viewed as high risk, partially because they're black or whether they're charities and nonprofits that can't get enough money to even apply for government processes to even get money, we wanted to put an end to that by creating what we hope to have as the world's largest endowment for the Black community, designed by the Black community and for the Black community.
2: Hmm. Well, I have a question, Kylie uh, you you was mentioning how that in Canada you have the same systemic racism as we see here in the U.S. I know you probably talked about. It, hopefully, excuse me of my ignorance, but can you tell me how the that impact you to to move on and and start doing the things that you're doing?
0: Yeah, so. It might come as a surprise, but I'll go all the way back to seventeen eighty four where uh in Canada there are some people that were called the loyalists, so they were sort of fighting for the british actually against uh the american revolutionaries and and there were a number of black people that were loyalists, and so they settled and built a town for themselves in Nova Scotia, so in the eastern part of Canada. Their reward was that they were attacked, their village was burnt down, a number were killed, a number were sexually assaulted by Hmm. white settlers that didn't like them. And so that is part of the history of Canada. Now you roll forward the tape to modern Toronto And you've got a lot of the same police incarceration stats, police carding stats, whether it is the COVID incidences uh, where, you know, Black people have much higher incidence of COVID. I believe it's 9% of the Toronto population, but 21% of COVID cases are in the Black community. Whether it's income, whether it's housing conditions, you just roll Proportion of of executives across firms is lowest, the size of businesses smallest for blacks. You know, just you you look at all the statistics and you realize, yes, in a few instances, the depth of severity might be worse in some instances in the U.S., but the broad picture is pretty similar. And so growing up, you know, uh, on the one hand, you force yourself to fit in to the environments that you need to fit in. I went to an incredibly non-racially diverse university for undergrad. I went to, and that university had tons of challenges with overt racism issues in addition to systemic issues. You know, Wall Street or Bay Street wouldn't be the best examples of diversity in the world. But you, you know, I've forced myself almost to fit in And I actually think that's wrong. And today's generation, I'm talking about people going to university today, I give them some credit because they're saying, no, we actually should not be fitting in. The system needs to change. And when I have conversations with people I went to school with and we we reflect on things, uh, and I have to say, not just black people, other people of color as well, we reflect that too much, we sort of fit into the system. And it was just, you know, cause we thought the system's not gonna change for us. So we might as well just fit in. And you know, all of the things that that apply. So whether it's, hey, you gotta work two times more than anybody else because you're black or you're only gonna get one chance. And if you mess up, that's too bad for you. Everybody else gets a second chance, but not you because you're black, right? All of those things shaped how I grew up. And that's what my parents told
1: me. Man, I'm, a, I'm really surprised that some of those same teachings that you see in the U.S., the, the work twice as hard, the you only got one real shot, and they're only going to give you one shot, and all of that stuff. It, I thought that I only existed here. But to see that it exists in other countries as well, that that really surprised me. I'm sorry, A P man, I thought I thought I heard you jumping in. Yeah,
3: I was just about to ask my question. It's all good. Hey, Collins, I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, what is the Black Opportunity Fund and who does it affect? By who by who does it affect? I mean like is it uh just black people or is it people of color or is it just, you know, black Canadians or So uh, yeah, what's the Black Opportunity Fund and and who does it affect?
0: Absolutely. So so our goal for the Black Opportunity Fund is that it is at least a billion dollars. It is just like an endowment fund would be for a university. So it's like an endowment. Every year it creates an investment that is somewhere between 50 and $100 million of money that goes into the Black community. And that's important and every year in perpetuity. So forever. And that's it's important because it you know, the desires that it lives outlives any government, right? So if the government changes, the program doesn't get cut. If the you know, if the media focuses on some other cause, the program doesn't get cut. This is a permanent program that invests specifically in black charities non-profits so philanthropic granting and investment in black businesses so it's not people of color it's specific to black charities non-profits and businesses and it's really intentional because you know the statistics are the statistics they're terrible and in canada there are two groups that get the title for having you know the worst statistics and it's black people and it is aboriginal people and and so therefore we gotta sort of double down for the benefit of all of canada by the way we have to double down and focus on black people because they've been overlooked and 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 there is anti-black racism and there is systemic racism and so as black people we've got both coming against us so we need a dedicated focus fund Now, unfortunately, for everybody outside Canada, this is restricted to Canada, largely because the organizations that we are in dialogue with to get funding are largely Canadian corporations and the government in Canada. So there is a restriction in terms of where they can have money flow. But, you know, we're not sort of creating new intellectual property. Right. And we don't have a trademark on the idea and it's not a patent. Right. So perhaps the model can be applied in other places as well.
1: So I'm I'm kind of curious a little bit about this because I'm like, okay, it seems like based on the way this is structured, there's a lot of people kind of involved in it. And, and I remember reading an article on, on this fund, and it mentioned something along the lines of the first 51, we'll just call them leaders, you know, to jump in on this. And and it, and they kind of span from different companies across Canada, people with uh people kind of in high up in different organizations, and I know you're one of them. How do you guys kind of envision your roles in this organization and, and and what parts do do you expect to play? as this starts to come together?
0: Yeah, great question. So we issued a press release over just over four weeks ago with 51 individuals. That's really important, the number. Not 51, it could have been some other number, but that there were at least that many people. And we wanted to demonstrate the collaborative nature in which we are beginning this journey called the Black Opportunity Fund, meaning that this is many voices from across the Black community here in Canada that were saying we need to do something and we need to do something substantial. It's not one person, it's not five people, it's many people. Since that press release, we're now well over 100. I believe we're coming close to 150. So what what are we doing and why is it important So let me start with the wise and important. This is for the Black community, by the Black community. So for that to be the case, for it to be by the Black community, we need to hear from, we need to involve, we need to partner with, and we need to help as many people and organizations in the Black community as possible. It's not about building a monument or building whatever, it is about creating something that hears, knows, responds to the needs that we hear across the Black community. So that's by gender, that's by geography, that's by language, because we have French and English in Canada, um, and that's by sexual orientation, and that's, you know, so all of that is is represented, all of that is heard, and all of that's reflected. And in, in what? So effectively, we have the part that gives money to businesses and the part that grants money to philanthropic organizations. Now we're building that from scratch, right? So we've organized into call it task forces, which are groups of people to accomplish something. And that is uh, call it startup phase, which is what we're in. And while we're in startup phase, we are also creating the permanent structure, i.e., the board, the different committees, everything else. And that's also important that we're doing things that way. And the reason is we want to create something that is completely sound, that has the right governance, the right processes, that is completely coherent from that perspective. But we also want, as we're in startup phase, to hear from over 1,100 black organizations from across Canada. That we've identified we want to reach out and hear from everyone and we want to hear the needs in halifax and in vancouver and in saskatchewan we want to hear the different needs and we want to reflect that in how we actually grant money and invest in businesses and so we have you know one task force reaching out to these 1100 organizations across canada we have another task force that's reaching out to the corporate sector and we've had areas within that, from banking to real estate to healthcare, care, et cetera. We've got another task force dealing with philanthropic individuals, those big families with lots of money. We've got another task force around governance and creating the right uh, long-term operating structure. Another one to engage with the government. Another one to create branding and communications. All of these are, have sort of come together to sort of stand up the organization really quickly and and help transition us to something more permanent. But it's super, super important that we represent the black community as much as possible in terms of where we hear the needs are. And then we, we use our, our collective expertise, our weight, our credibility, whatever it is, to get a base of funding that nobody ever dreamt possible. And that base of funding that nobody ever dreamt possible to exist and do work in perpetuity
1: hmm. that's amazing, like just hearing that the the first of all just the numbers you're throwing out one billion dollars, millions of dollars every year going into targeted businesses groups the amount of complexity that you just described as far as where the money's gonna come from, driving philanthropic uh, monies into nonprofits and driving support towards black businesses. I just, I'm amazed at one, the speed, two, just how broad you guys have really taken this. And before we dive any deeper, we're gonna go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, We'll be in the cruising altitude. Canada's
0: not a perfect country, but we certainly have capitalism. And the last time I checked, there's quite a few people living in pretty nice houses in different parts of the country that have done fairly successful for themselves running companies that are all over the world mm. and these are Canadian Canadian companies like Shopify is an example as a Canadian company that got started and last time I checked was pretty successful right so it's <laughs> not like
1: change the world in a lot of ways I don't know if e-commerce would be what it is without Shopify
0: so, so you know but it came out of this apparently very socialist country so right right you know i i, I think that there is a little bit of a sort of view that we're all up here in canada very very socialist now last time i checked we have some pretty big companies look at our banks that are all over the u.s harris bank is owned by canadian bank td is all over the northeast of the u.s rbc has a huge a huge complex in, in New York,
2: etc etc. To catch exclusive content from this episode or any of our previous episodes, subscribe to our Patreon at Chemtrails Podcast.
1: Alright, we are back. We are in the cruising altitude. I'm gonna go ahead and throw it over to my boy AP.
3: I appreciate you there, Trader Dre. Hey Colin, I got another question for you, if you don't mind. Sure, go ahead. All right, man. How could this model potentially work in the United States?
0: Yeah, I, I think I think it could work even better in the U.S. Really? Yeah. So first off, there is an there's something called the New Commonwealth Fund. They seem to be based out of Boston, and it looks like they are trying to raise a hundred million. But to do something that sounds a little similar. I haven't talked with them, so I don't know exactly. But if I, you know, that might be an example of already something being done in the US. But even more broadly, what I have seen as it relates to corporations saying, hey, we actually need to step up to the plate and actually do something, or pretty rich people with lots of money saying, uh, you know, I, I think it was Jeff Basil's ex-wife who's donated quite a bit to historically black colleges and universities. I, mean, I think I, it was
1: 10% of her $1.6 billion in donations. So about 10% of that.
0: About 10%, okay. Going straight to
1: HBCUs, yeah.
0: So I think I think that there is, in a way that we haven't seen before, organizations that are sort of stepping up to the plate to put down some cash to actually do something. You know, the dynamic that's a little different, I would say is that in Canada, we've clearly got a different government dynamic than than in the US. So that part might be a little bit more challenging, but, you know, I think that that more challenging side on the government is made up by, you know, there's a lot more corporations, a lot more sort of high-flying tech firms with people that, you know, from what I can tell, have woken up to the reality, at least for now, they've woken up to the reality that, you know, the lived experience of being Black in America is dramatically, you know, different than their privileged positions. So, you know, after rela you know so it seems like there's there's a little bit, a bit more desire to do something right now and so putting together a fund to help organizations in whether it's you know the city or your community or your state that that combines maybe funding from you know the state or or the city combines funding from you know a bank or an asset management firm or your other company in healthcare or wherever, plus you know individuals that are that have done well for themselves, but you know have a heart for the community. It's not easy, but it's certainly not. It doesn't seem like it's it's impossible to do. So, I think it's a model that can be copied and applied in the USA.
2: Hmm. So, Colin, that's that's good to hear. Matter of fact, that brings up. Another question here in the U.S., we really talk about the importance of black ownership in in owning our own and controlling our own narrative. With that being said, how does someone start to take ownership of a fund or investment company?
0: I got to say that taking ownership of an investment company is one of the toughest things to do. And here's the reason why I would say that when people look to make an investment, you've got multiple layers of things going on. So first is, okay, so what previous investments have you made and what's your investment track record, right? So the next question in in candor would be, you know, when people think about somebody running an investment fund they've got a white middle-aged or older male as who they typically think. Mm -hmm. And anybody else is sort of like a, oh, wow. Okay. I wasn't expecting that. Okay. You know, you got that kind of reaction going on, not all the time, but a lot of the time. So I'd say that's a challenge and that's what makes, makes, you know, running an investment fund challenging. I think, if I were to look into you know for from, from my perspective sitting here in Canada looking at the u s a there are some advantages number one is there is a bigger community of black people in the u s a to be able to you know to to direct wealth into right so there's a lot more black people that have savings that have that are able to direct their you know, investment dollars into funds that are sort of led by black people. The second is that there is there are some investment firms out there that are run, not not many, but are run by black people. And those firms provide great training grounds for black individuals who can then create their track record and then start their own firm. The third is that there are some powerful allies, i.e. not black people who nevertheless realize that they got to do something and, and to, to combat anti-black racism, to eliminate systemic racism and to, and to help black people to, to get to where black people should be in terms of running investment firms and my advice is you know and what i've done in the past personally is when i find somebody like that you know recruit them to become your mentor and not just from the hey i think you should do this but hey i can open up my 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 rolodex and introduce you to this person that person and the other person and the first person might be somebody that can teach you how to to actually start up an investment firm the second person might be able to show you some tips on investing, and the third person might believe in you so much that they might actually give you some seed capital uh, to start investing. And and so, it is very very tough in the investment world for a black person to to succeed as an owner, or as call it a principal of an investment fund. But it is possible to do. I think that. And especially as as a result of the last couple of months, um, I think that there are more people willing to lend a hand than we've than we've ever seen um in the investment industry before. And that also goes for, you know, venture capital firms and black, you know, black led venture capital firms and and also firms that are looking for black led founders. There's a there's quite there's a number of those that have been created in the last couple of years. And so uh, not anywhere near where we need to be, but things are easier than they were a couple of years ago. And now there's a little bit of an ecosystem uh, that we, you know, that we can rely on.
1: So I'm a little confused here and I just maybe was hoping you might shed some light on this. How does asset management work? And maybe if you don't mind explaining a little bit of the sort of the principles they use and if those can be used in sort of those, maybe like a small or a group portfolio, like you said, um, if you're starting out, you have to have some sort of track record. So what are kind of the principles that these big firms use in asset management that maybe someone starting out might look to utilize?
0: Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. So the first question, how does asset management work? So at the core, it's really simple. It is a bunch of people or companies or organizations give somebody money. That person uses that money to buy stocks or bonds or buildings or companies and hopes to make more money than what they started, i.e. they make good investments. Those investments are worth more. They sell some of those investments or they have dividends and the proceeds go back to the people that gave the person the money, the investors, i.e. the people, the corporations, etc. In the process, the person that made that great investment charges a fee, and they charge two types of fees. One, and not all the time do they charge two types of fees, just to be clear, but you could charge two types of fees. The first fee is a fee for managing the money, and it's a, and you, you express it as a percentage of the assets that you manage. So let's say if you have $100, and you charge a 1% management fee, then you collect $1 and the investor gets $99. Now, hopefully the investor gets more than that because when you took the $100, you invested it, hopefully it's worth 110. And so then the investor gets back you know, $109 and you keep $1. The other type of, of fee is called a performance fee. So it's a little bit more complicated, but basically think of it like this. If the investment performs well, the manager can take a portion of the gains. And if the investment does not well, the manager can't take anything. Right? So, I've really I've simplified it a bit, but at the core that's what what it is. So,
1: let's let's say for instance the manager is trying to get people on board and he's saying, "Hey, I'm going to guarantee at least a 6 or 7% annual return, right?" And if he was doing that and he says, "Okay, I can hit that 6 or 7% and I'll take 1% of the gains and the 5% left goes to the the original investors." Would that be how that model works?
0: Yeah, yeah. Now. Okay. He wouldn't guarantee because you could sue him and and it wouldn't be good to <laughs> say, "I hope to give you this return if the return is above five percent every year, then I get to take a portion of whatever the above whatever that return is okay and so yeah you you basically got it the it you know that performance fee can be very very lucrative right so when people in the asset management business you know the private equity firms the hedge funds venture capitalist firms when you see a lot of them doing very financially well many times it's due to that second sort of performance fee so then that begets the question how do you get there well you go back to sort of okay what is the reputation of that person well what what defines reputation Reputation is a function of your performance, but I would argue it's more of a function of who you know and who's vouching for you. And then that becomes a question about what are your networks like and what's your networking and who can sort of say, hey, I know this person really well. I would trust them with my money because of X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Hence that
1: saying, my network is my net worth.
0: Precisely. Now, and, and there's various ways to get there. You can sort of, you know, work at a different firm and, you know, invest and generate a track record, that, record that way. But this is how you get a lot of racial disparities in asset management. Because, you know, if you grew up on the country club and your uncle and your father's father and your best friend's, you know, aunt, are all sort of big time asset management people, then guess who's vouching for you? Right. So if you're wanting to go out and create your new shop, your own firm, uh, who's gonna be sort of backing you up? Well, the people you grew up with.
1: I'm curious, how does, and I know this is a little uh, little bit of a stretch, but how do you see, this changing in this kind of changing environment of cryptocurrencies of crowdfunding of, of just new technology just kind of really, really changing the landscape of how money is being used?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So look, I would say prior to 2020 prior to, you know, the George Floyd protests and, and what's happened and everything else, I would say as it relates to to race and participation in asset management, no change. And here's the reason why. If you look at Silicon Valley, if you look at the tech founders, if you look at the venture capitalists, who are behind, you know who who are driving a lot of gains in cryptocurrencies who are driving a lot of innovation around fintech you would see even lower participation of black individuals there and so you know we are which is another passion point of mine we're in the fourth industrial revolution right we are at a moment in time in business that well, hundreds of years from now, we'll look back and we'll say entire new enterprises got created out of thin air and tremendous wealth got generated for some people, right? It is an utterly transformative time. Even what we're able to do right now, right, is, is highly transformative in terms of all the technologies. And that goes to asset management and cryptocurrencies and, and, and like Bitcoin, whatever it is. And blockchain, the participation rate of Black people in that new wealth has been so low; it gives me grave concern for where we will be twenty years from now. And so today, it's super important that we change that. Sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, um, man, you, you had caught my eye when you were saying that we're in the. A- you said the fourth industrial revolution i agree i believe cuz i'm a very history buff and i and i like to analyze history and see how what we did in the past affect today right so um real quick cuz i know we getting short on time um the grassroots movement which plays a big part on on all our movements here in the US i mean pretty much all of them so how are y'all using the the grassroots movement to, I guess, perpetuate your agenda on, on getting funding for, for your investment groups and and just to and better Black people in a whole.
0: Yeah, so also great question. This so we we've got Bay Street in Canada, so what and and Bay Street's like Wall Street. What I always say is this cannot be Bay Street for Bay Street, right? Hmm. It's got to be for the Black community, by the Black community, which means a few things. One, all of the organizations, the people that work day in, day out in the inner cities, we need to hear from them. More than that, we need to involve them. And we need to support them. We're not replacing them. We're not diminishing their voices. We're not diverting funding from them in any sense of that word. We need to stand beside them and give them funding from sources that would never have interacted with them in the past. Right? We are opening up completely new doors. And and so that's critically important. You know the grassroots, and it, whether it's the protesting that's happened, or whether it is the uh, advocacy, the Twitter, the the social media stuff, whatever it is, is important because it drives attention, awareness, and it prompts conversations in in parts of society that have never happened before, right? And what we are doing is not replacing any of that. We are we are standing behind all of that and and we are funding and we're supporting we're enabling them we're enabling the charities and the nonprofits to 10x the work that they do. Too. So that's that's critically important. We we really are we're we're not for the 1% even in the black community, right? We're not there to to do that. We are we are there to help people in the black community that just simply haven't had the access to opportunity. That's why it's called the Black Opportunity Fund.
1: So I got a quick question. Out here in the United States, we had uh, a historical location. It was called the Black. It was called Black Wall Street. It was, of course, destroyed long ago. But was there ever any any kind of, I would say, Black epicenter of financial growth and economic empowerment at any point in Canada? That was kind of well-known, like a Black Bay Street, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, no. And I wish, I mean, that's a short answer to that.
1: So, this, so, this may, so, so what you're doing may very well be the first of its kind. And I think that's, that's even more impressive because it's like, you guys have never had it. And for us, it's like, we had it and we lost it. So I think that it's it's even more impressive that you guys are are creating something so powerful for your, for your community and I, I just cannot cannot speak enough on on how important that is. Uh before we jump into the landing, AP, did you have anything?
3: No, I didn't have anything.
1: Okay. Mo Chris, you got anything else you want to ask before we jump into the landing?
2: Nah, um Man, it's been an amazing conversation so far. I'm just, I'm still taking it all in. (laughs) Yeah,
1: if you come up with something, we'll we'll definitely have more room in the layover. (laughs) All right. We're going to jump right into the landing.
2: Hey, Chemtrail listeners, if you out there and you're making a positive impact in your community, but well, we would love to showcase your work. Just email us at chemtrailspodcasts at gmail.com.
1: Okay, everybody, we are at that point in time. We're about to wrap this thing up. It is the landing. First things first, want to give thanks to our guest, Colin. Love hearing about what you're doing. I cannot speak enough on on how important it is that we see this this fund succeed. And I really look forward to, to hearing more and more about what you guys are doing out there and the impact that you have I really do believe that this is one of those things where we look back and we say, twenty years from now, this could be a pivot point that utterly changed the the face of uh, black economic development in the in the country of Canada. But uh, before we go, just want to ask, man, what else do you got kind of in the pipeline? What's on the horizon for you?
0: Yeah, good. Uh, what else is on the horizon? You know, a few a few things. One one. I love, I'd love to get the Black Opportunity Fund's vision into reality, right? So we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of money to raise. We've got a lot of figuring out to do in terms of how we grant this money. And we've got a lot of people across the country to engage. And if we can help anybody that's inspired in the U.S. and beyond by this, all the better. I've got, I've got my day job which also keeps things busy and uh you know you can imagine if you own real estate worldwide it's a in- very interesting time to to be buying real estate and to own real estate and a whole ton of stuff is changing everywhere i also you know sit on a few boards so I'm, i am about to join the board of a of a, of of a big symphony orchestra up here in canada And I have to say that symphony orchestra is reinventing themselves to be less of what you think a symphony orchestra looks like, and more of what I think it should be, which is a symphony orchestra that goes out into the community, that performs in nursing homes and in jails and in condominium parking lots that is reflective of the community that's diverse and that is relevant. That's a a huge transformation and i think and it's tough especially right now but i'm inspired by that and soon hopefully i'll be i'll be able to say i'll i'll be also on a hospital board uh hospitals are a little different in canada cuz they're non-profit and they're owned by the government uh, but they do the same work which is they help you know umpteen thousands of people every year get better and i'm inspired by that you know, clearly, I got other things to do than work, like hanging out with my fam, with my better half, doing running, playing some, playing some ball, doing doing other things, and taking advantage of the warm weather because it's Canada, and uh, you know, it's short lived.
2: I want to just say, uh, Colin, man. First of all, thank you for coming on our show. I think it's quite impressive, a Harvard grad. I'm not sure we mentioned that earlier um, to our listeners. Yeah, we have a Harvard grad sitting in front of us right now. And and I'm coming from a HBCU, a historically black college. And so we get in debates all the time about Ivy League schools versus, you know, regular other schools, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think it's just so humbling that a person with your prestige, your high level of expertise in, in your job that that you are speaking on issues because most of the time we don't get high execs speaking and and you know telling us what's really going on out here. So I just want to commend you for that, and with my being as humble as I can, and um and like I said uh that that's pretty much what I say. Just thank you and giving you your flowers right now.
0: Oh man, I, I I look, I I appreciate that. It's my honor to be on this with you guys. It's been a pleasure, and uh, you know I, I'm glad you guys are doing this. Glad to have been on. Thanks,
3: man. Hey Colin, it's AP again. Hey, before I kind of do my little spill, can I ask you a quick question? You don't yeah. have to answer if you don't feel comfortable. How how old are you? If you don't mind me asking. Thirty five. Okay. Thank you. And I thank you for answering that question because it just further proves my point and what I was getting into. Man, I I truly appreciate you for first being on our show, you know, for going to Harvard, for basically being a strong example to the young black people, the younger black people. And even the reason why I asked you that is because I feel like it's our job to, you know, make this world better for our children. You know what I'm saying? I feel Mm -hmm. like you know, basically the baton got passed to us. And that's why I was asking what your age was just to kind of see, kind of get a feel for, you know, where you are, you know, in that race. And you are basically right where we are. And like I said, I just appreciate you because all that stuff you just accomplished without me knowing you, I would thought you was like in your forties or something, you know what I'm saying? Because usually you don't see like young black men already graduated from Harvard being 35 and sitting on boards, several boards at that. So that's very impressive, man. And like I said, I just... I appreciate you. I appreciate you spent taking your time out, your busy schedule, you know, to be on our podcast and to drop some knowledge and gems. And, uh, man, it's we definitely going to stay in touch, bro. Absolutely.
1: All right, all right. All right. Fellas, again, uh, I want to say once again thank you to Colin. True example of of what we, as AP was kind of outlining, what we, what we need out there some young voices sitting on the boards having a seat at the table kind of addressing some of these issues that that we need addressed and speaking on it at a platform where, where they are able to actually make changes so glad to have that all right we're gonna wrap it up as always uh, you can catch us on your favorite uh streaming platforms apple spotify etc etc and uh we out of here
2: yeah Hey, Chemtrail listeners, want to leave a message? Just click the link in our show notes to leave a voicemail. And if you come from a simpler times like myself, just call. Leave us a voicemail at 832-308-0529. And don't forget, all messages can record up to three minutes long.
3: What up, what up? It's your boy, AP. Make sure you follow us at Chemtrails Podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Hit us up. Once again, that's Chemtrails Podcast at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Peace out. Get your voice heard at
1: www.chemtrails.mn.co. Join the community.
0: Thank <laughs> you.